So <clears throat> I was reminded that it, it, it may have been a while since I've used one of my reminder phrases of what we do here. Um, and when I get an opportunity to preach and teach, um, that really, in, in fact, it is a, it's a divine act that we are all involved in, um, that God's word is given by inspiration of God, that is God breathed, and it is um, what and the Holy Spirit brings that to our hearts and our attention. He calls us, one, to preach and to teach it and to explain it to others. And then he also calls us to hear that and to listen to that. And so right now we are involved in a supernatural divine act that God will use a sinner to share his word and his spirit will take that and mold it to our hearts and change us. And so my phrase, I don't say that often, but that is a truth and it is a great theology of preaching and teaching that we are a part of. But my phrase is, if it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's Brad. <laughs> so Gary and I were talking this morning. He thinks it's been 10 years since I've said it. I know I've said it since then. But, um, but if, it's really true that if it's good and, the, and it blesses your heart and it challenges and changes you, it's, it's because God is working and he is to be glorified and praised. And if it feels like it's a waste of time or really long, or why can't that guy just shut up and let us go watch the Browns and Steelers game, um, <clears throat> then that's bad. That's just because I'm rambling about something that I think is important, and it may not be what God intends us. So we pray and ask that the Spirit would to lead and to guide, to direct, and to help us uh, turn our attentions to him, uh, that he may be glorified, that he may... Um, be what we're about. And Jesus said, when the sun is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. And so it is my goal uh, to always point people to Christ, the Christ of the word, um, and not to the preacher, to the speaker of the word. <clears throat> so, yes, uh, last week we, we uh, began chapter 11, and we were, uh, we're faced with a, a very challenging, some challenging questions, provocative statements that happen. Um, and, and the raising of Lazarus. There's a lot of things that go in there. And, uh, and when we look at it, there there's comes to mind some things that may, may not have been said, or why didn't John say that? Or if I was there, maybe I would do this. Or certainly, if Lazarus was raised from the dead today, there would be CNN, CBS, Fox News, all trying to get the latest up, update and report, and they're trying to interview uh, John, uh, Lazarus. There'd be um, people vying for movie rights and, and book sales, and they're kind of saying, hey, let's talk to Lazarus, let's hear his story about the afterlife and, and what he experienced, and all these things. I mean, maybe you're questioning that, like, where did Lazarus go? Like, what happened in those four days when he was dead and he was buried, and, and what was it like And what, what, for him to open his eyes in the tomb and to hop out in his grave clothes and, and all this? Thing? What was that like for Lazarus? And John says nothing about that. He moves on so quickly from Jesus saying, uh, take those grave clothes off of him to where we pick up today. Uh, and then that's because it doesn't really matter about Lazarus. Doesn't matter what he experienced, doesn't matter what he thinks, doesn't matter his perspective. I mean, that'd be nice to know, but there's no gospel according to Lazarus out there. Uh, Lazarus was just a man, and his, his life, his sickness, his death— and his resurrection was to demonstrate the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. In John 11, verse 4 is where we read that. So it doesn't matter what you think about Lazarus or the opinions that you have or the speculations that you might want to talk about, what because that's, that's temporal. That's in the past. That was a demonstration of Christ's power. But what you do with Jesus Christ is of eternal significance. So it moves quickly from the event with Lazarus to people making a choice about who Jesus Christ is. So in review, 
Remember that we talked about last week that because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he wanted to continually develop his disciples, Jesus waited for Lazarus to die before going to him, lest he would have healed him and they would have missed out on this, the demonstration of his power. We see that Jesus encountered both the sisters where they were at and counseled them in their time of need. He gave them safe space to process their grief in their own way. In their pain, Jesus wept with them. He met with them, and he, then he declared the ultimate comfort. And again, in verse 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus, and yet he still wept with them. He empathized with them. He met them at the crossroads of their pain, and he walked through that with them. And with the simple words, Lazarus, come forth, life returned to the dead. The inanimate corpse was resuscitated, and he came out of the grave back to life, which is where we pick up today. And so let's pick up there in verse 45 of chapter 11, and we'll read to the end. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and, he, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. <clears throat> after, so, after they witnessed this last miracle that John records in his book that Jesus performed, signs pointing to the people who Jesus Christ really was, that he came from God, that he was the Son of God, that he had power over life and death. Um, <clears throat> they come to a place of what should we do? I know later we see the council ask that very question, but if you're spectating what's going on at the resurrection of Lazarus, it really comes down to, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do about what he says? That he declares himself the resurrection and the life. Then he raised someone from the dead. What are you going to do? We see two responses that the people had here. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what they did, some believed and some did not believe. We don't see the reaction that Lazarus had. We don't see what Mary and Martha did. We don't hear the celebration that follow. John moves us immediately to their reaction. 
Many had come with Mary, um, and some believed and some did not. Mary, by virtue of who she was, had the opportunity in her pain and in her struggle, in her celebration, to influence many who would come with her. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about the power of influence. As we pause here in these two verses, that um, really we could say that's the power of friendship. And I think power is a, such an important word that we have uh, to think about that Mary, we see here, that many who were with Mary believed, those who had come with Mary, uh, in her grief, in her pain, in her life, her friends had come av around her. Now, some of us um, that are more introverted by nature like to find isolation. I like isolation often, and I like to do process things by myself, but what that does sometimes is it, it robs me of the opportunity to be ministered by my friends and them the opportunity to see how I process and think through things. So learning to be more vulnerable is a good thing to invite people into our lives, especially as believers who have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us through the, the tough things. Mary here had people who she invited in who came with her. Um, <clears throat> they were allowed to be a part of her life, a part of her grief, and then in that they were allowed to meet her friend Jesus Christ and to see the power of Christ. You and I, by the nature of how God created us, have the unique opportunity, the privilege, and power to influence others for good or for evil. You see, we are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. In Genesis 127, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Being created in the image of God, it has deep, profound meanings that one, we can know, one, we can't comprehend or have time to explain all of today, uh, but it does mean that we are set apart from all parts of creation, the created order, that, that humankind is different than the rest of creation because we are stamped with the image of God. We have value, meaning, and purpose that flows from that image of God, that life isn't meaningless, that there is no purpose, that, that we are here to reflect our Creator, to live with Him. We were designed to be in right relationship with Him, but sin came in the world and separated us. And so that image of God is most fully seen when we are united to the Father through the Son and lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. God made us relational beings. As he is relational, and the triune Godhead from all of creation was related to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he invites us into a relationship with him, but he has put right within each of us the desire to be in relationship with others, and he's called us into a new community, the church. We are relational beings who are called to multiply, to cultivate, and to create. Being image bearers means we have been given tremendous power to influence others. Again, since the fall, we have a choice of influencing people for good or for evil. Mary didn't set an agenda or an evangelistic plan when she made friends. She just made friends. She became, uh, she got to know people in her community. She invited them in. But it was in her friendship with Jesus that makes the difference because her friends got to meet her friends. There was a, an Irish proverb that says, the best thing a friend can do for their friends is to share them. And what a, what a profound truth that if we develop a friendship with Jesus Christ, uh, we ought to be sharing our friend with our friends. It's just the, the very nature of evangelism is to introduce people to our best friend. And many of you were here, remember when Nick Vucic was here, uh, when he goes into the schools and he talks about uh, um, positive talks in public schools, he talks about a friendship that changed his life, and then he has a comeback meeting where they get the, when he's like, if you want to hear more about my friend, come back, and then he tells him about Jesus Christ. 
his friendship with Jesus changed him and impacts many people because he's inviting people into his life to share his friend, Jesus. And so because she was friends with Jesus, many had the opportunity to see the power of God and to come to that place of what are we to do with Jesus to believe or to reject him. Leads us to just a question, a couple questions. How is your walk with Christ? Do you know him? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Do you believe that he has power in your life to change, to set you free, to release you into this world? Are you cultivating friendships, with, a, a friendship with Jesus that is evident to your family, to your friends, to your classmates, to your coworkers? Is Jesus empowering you to forsake sin, to pursue righteousness? <clears throat> And are you then inviting people into your life to encounter your friend, Jesus Christ, and your love for him? I'm not saying that you need to go from here and force conversations with everybody you meet to tell them about Jesus, though many of you are gifted in uh, sharing Christ in many different ways. But we are looking for a persistent faithfulness to Christ that is lived out each and every day that builds a foundation so that when you speak about Christ, people see the evidence of Christ in your life and say, I want what you have. It's been uh, some of the greatest joy in my life that here at Lakeside, as people come in, uh, there's been times when people come in and they say, man, I love what goes on here. I, I see what Christ is doing. I want that. We've had kids come to youth group at times who celebrated and worship um, Jesus Christ because their friends not only did it here at church, but they lived it out in the schools. And they said, I see my friends at school that they really believe this, and I want that. A belief in Jesus Christ that is sincere, that's authentic, that is lived out every day is compelling because it provides the answers to the deepest questions of our heart. Who is Jesus? What are we to do with Jesus? is so important, and so we seek to have a persistent faithfulness because we each have a power of influence. How many times I've heard of Christians going through tra tragedy, sickness, or loss that respond in such a way that it causes those around them to say, what's going on? Why are you responding differently? Like, I don't understand this. Some of my closest friends have gone through things in the hospital, um, and many of you know my friend Doug and, and Jess and Jada going through her cancer that that provided many opportunities for Christ to be shared because of how they responded to uh, tragic circumstances, awful um, life circumstances. But um, I, I just think of one time when Jada was there and a new nurse walked in and Jada said, hey, has my dad told you about Jesus yet? <laughs> and, and Doug was like, thanks, Jada. So here he's suffering as a dad, struggling to understand why things are going the way they are, and his daughter prompts him to share about Jesus, which is the balm for our, our, our struggles and the healing that Christ brings. And, uh, and God sees that, and he, that persistent faithfulness in those tragic times, in those times of loss, in those times of hurt and pain, allowing Christ to flow through you to influence others. That's what Mary did. And, and people saw Christ in his power. Now, Mary's case was different. It was a supernatural event that is a one-time event in the, in the scriptures that we see not to be considered the normative part of our life. But because she had brought friends in, many of them believed. They were witness. They, Mary, just an ordinary person inviting people in, had the power to influence because they saw Jesus in her life and through them. But not all believed. Some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, it says. 
It's good to remember that no matter what we say, doesn't, no matter how clear of a gospel presentation we give, no matter if we go through the, all the, the right steps, can we force someone to become a Christian? That's not our business. Our job is to be persistently faithful to our Savior and to share of who He is with others. At that point, it's God's business and their business, what they do with Jesus. But they have to come to a place to say, what do I do with Jesus? Do I believe or do I not believe? You can prayerfully invite them into your life. You can introduce them to your friend Jesus Christ. You can paint them a picture uh, about what the gospel, what the Bible says, but the rest is between them and God. And I think that's such a, a crucial thing to say, paint them a picture. Uh, it is so amazing to take a moment and to just give an overview of the scripture about what God is doing to someone who has never really heard or who you know has not been trained in the, in the true understanding of the word of God. I was thinking, um, I was on a plane one time uh, flying down to do a writing project and I, uh, I had a lot of work to do, and it was uh, a red-eye flight early in the morning, and I, I was like, either want to sleep or I need to work. And um, this girl sits next to me and wants to talk. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to talk. I'm an introvert. Leave me alone. Uh, put the headphones on, but that didn't stop her. She wanted to keep talking. Turns out um, she had a Catholic beginning, but was just... Um, wasn't going to church anywhere, kind of walked away from any faith that she had. And as she's asking me a question, we're talking, I was like, do you mind if I just paint you a picture of what we believe the Bible says? And beginning just from God created us to be in a relationship with him, especially stopping at the parts that, that Jesus pursues us, that Jesus gives us his righteousness and offers us a free gift, that it's nothing that we do or have to earn, uh, but that he freely uh, gives to us. Um, and then in just a, a few moments, she stops. She says, I've never heard that before. And what, what a great opportunity as a believer. I don't have to see her. I would love to have seen her come pray right there and receive Jesus. She didn't, but she had something to think about. And, and that's, that's our goal is to be salt in this world that causes people to think about who is Jesus and what am I going to do with Jesus? And those who, who left... They went and talked to the Pharisees who took it to the Sanhedrin. They called an emergency meeting of the council, the ruling body of the Jews of that day. Um, <clears throat> it's a good, again, to remember that as image bearers, we have the power to influence others for good or for evil. Uh, but in the fall, we have corrupted power, and it is most evidently seen when we get into positions of power. It has been said, power corrupts, absolute power crap, corrupts, absolutely. Um, so let's look at how the religious leaders abused their power and their position. The Sanhedrin, the council met together. And uh, again, it's the ruling body of the, the Jews at the time. Uh, and they're like, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do about this guy who's raising people from the dead? Uh, <clears throat> they recognize, this is a sad truth. The council, the Sanhedrin, they recognized Jesus was performing miracles and that um, they could not be explained other than that God was working through them. There were many convincing proofs that he was who he said he is. And uh, the longer that they allow him to go, that the more people will believe and follow in him. I mean, it's a sad thought that they recognize these things. He performs miracles. We can't explain it. Uh, and people are going to believe in him if he keeps going. And they continue to reject him. They refuse to believe. And we ask, why? Why would they not believe? They see it. They should be. They're the religious leaders who are supposed to be teaching the law, the prophets. They should be imparting the truth of God. They should be expecting the Messiah. And in many senses, they recognized him as a Messiah uh, 
type, but they refused to reject them because they didn't think it was the time. Uh, they didn't want to give up their space. Uh, and so in verse 48, we see that um, they didn't believe because of their fears and their arrogance. It says, if we let him go on like this, think about that. Here's a council saying, if we continue to let him teach and to, to do these miracles, people, everybody's going to believe on him. Who are they to stop the Son of God from doing whatever he wants to do? <laughs> they can't. They, uh, they still think they had power of him, but they did not. Jesus was the, the author and giver of life. He was walking amongst them, and he could do whatever he wanted to, and the only power they had over him was what he allowed them to have. Think of what Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, verse 10, 11. Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. They believed they had power, but they didn't realize the power they had was only given to them by God for that time. They had no power to stop Jesus, but Jesus allowed them to rule and to continue in power in order that the plan of redemption that the Father and the Son, the Spirit, had put into play since the beginning of time may, might be played out. So their arrogance prevented them from believing. Their fears, everyone will believe in him, verse 48, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They were afraid that people would continue to be following Jesus and stop listening to them, that their, their power of influence over the people would continue to diminish because everybody would be following Jesus. And then they thought, well, if he does that, then Rome's going to get mad. They're going to send in people to, to one, they're going to remove us from our positions. Uh, they're going to destroy our temple. They're going to destroy our city. And, um, and so we got to stop Jesus from, from leading people to the destruction of Jerusalem. That was their line of thinking because they thought they had everything in control. Now, if we put it in perspective of what was the Sanhedrin at that time, uh, we, we learned that Caiaphas, who's the high priest, um, who was the, nephew, uh, the, the son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest, the high priest at that time was put into position by Rome for a period of time. Only three years was the average tenure of the high priest um, in that season, uh, although Caiaphas somehow managed 18 years as high priest. Why? Because he knew how to get along with Rome. He, he was part of the Sadducee um, faction of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were part of the aristocrats, uh, aristocracy. They were um, in, in political government. They were power-hungry and, and wealthy people who, who used their position to manipulate others. And, uh, and this is Caiaphas was in there. He worked the system well, where he could last a very long time in a Roman-ruled environment uh, as the high priest. And so he, uh, he comes in and he says, um, when they're asking, what do they do? He comes in in verse 49, he says, you know nothing at all. Again, here he comes in as the high priest and he's talking to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin and saying, you don't know anything. I'm going I'm to set the record straight. I mean, just he's high priest. He's the most important religious and political uh, figure in their, in their circles. And he's going to set everybody straight. Uh, I forgot to mention the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees are different in, in, in many ways. But one thing, the Pharisees were, were mostly from the common people raised up, trained up to protect the, the Jewish lifestyle, the traditions, to preserve um, the heritage that God had given to them. And they were, um, and, and the Pharisees and Sadducees would oftentimes be at odds in the Sanhedrin. Every so often we see them come together and one of those things is they want to kill Jesus. That's one thing they had in common. 
Picking up uh, in verse 50, it says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the, nation, the people, not the whole nation should perish. So from that day on, in verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas, the high priest, comes to the scene, takes control of the council, um, and just simply says, hey, we're, we're going to take care of this. We're going to put him to death. Um, <clears throat> So he took advantage of his position for personal gain, uh, working in cooperation with Rome so as not to lose his, his position. And so I wanted to, to take a moment to look at the, uh, the abuse of power we see in Caiaphas. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when we begin to understand what was a priest, specifically the high priest, but a priest supposed to do. Eugene Peterson writes this, a priest stands in the middle between us and God, between God and us. The priest presents God to us. Tell us who God is, the way he acts, the truth that he reveals. He invites us to receive this God, believe in him, obey and trust and worship him. And the priest presents us to God, presents our sin and our guilt, our work and our thanksgiving, our failures and pretensions, our sickness and our ignorance, and asks God to receive us, to forgive us, guide us, save us. The, pri the priest offers God to us, all of God, everything that God is and does, a gift to us. The priest offers us to God, everything that we are and do, a gift to God. There is no coercion either way. The priest clears a vast field of freedom in which Godly freely gives and we receive, in which we freely give and God receives. A priest is to be our go-between. He's the one to come before us and to help us understand who God really is and help us understand how we can bring our sins and our struggles and our failures to the altar and see how God will bring forgiveness and healing to those things. But instead, we see Caiaphas that is thoroughly entrenched in a secular view of power and rule, and he's willing to go into extremes to, to keep that. Andy Crouch, in his book, Playing God, critiques this view of power as he quotes one of its proponents. C. Wright Mills said, all politics is a struggle for power. The ultimate kind of power is violence. He takes it to an extreme in this critique of power. Caiaphas is brought, bought into this lie and brings it right in here where he jumps to violence. <clears throat> he says, you know nothing, we're going to kill him, we're going to take care of this once for all. So he's saying the ultimate expression of power is violence. This is a secular viewpoint that says, hey, if we want to take control, we're going to take it by might, by force, and... Uh, and we're going to destroy. But this is, not, this is not the power that God has, wants us to have or gives us. Crouch continues when he says, rather than saying that violence is the ultimate kind of power, we should say instead that violence is the ultimate distortion of power. Violence is the worst way that power can go wrong, and all other ways that power can go wrong do indeed lead us down the slippery slope to violence. And violence uses a, uses a force that undermine the dignity of human beings and other created things is the clearest sign that power has indeed gone astray. Violence is the last refuge of frustrated God players and idols gone bad, lashing out at those that will not bend to their demands and give in to their quest for control. The, the jump to violence is... Is, is demonstrating that things are sliding out of control. Caiaphas is losing control, and he wants to hang on to that because Caiaphas is a frustrated God player, and his idol has gone out of control. So he distorts power to seek a violent end to his opposition. 
The ruling body was supposed to give spiritual insight. It was supposed to reveal who God is, how God's working, how we can be reconciled to God, and how we can live out God's commands and decrees in our lives. But now we have a political, religious, power-hungry group who are more concerned about keeping their power and using their position to uh, manipulate, to control, and to take advantage of people. Crouch continues... Power, especially concentrated power, always places us at the crossroad where we must choose between creation and destruction, flourishing and violence. In the light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Christians have come to the glad conclusion that violence is not the ultimate kind of power. Far from it. For all its twisted terror, it is nonetheless a weak, defeatable, and indeed vanquished kind of power. True power is creation, and the truest power is resurrection. The new creation that can restore flourishing even when violence has done its worst. Wow. <clears throat> and Jesus demonstrated true power in the resurrection where he redeemed power, power redeemed in Christ, that he who uh, was willing to give himself up sacrificially, even as we sang in the Lamb of God and other songs that, that substitute, Christ was willing to substitute himself for us, showed the true demonstration of, of power and re a restoration of power. The author and giver of life came to sacrifice himself to redeem the unworthy and reconcile us back to God. God is so gracious that even, um, that he was even willing to use Caiaphas, who was manipulating, controlling, and power-hungry, use his words as prophecy. It says again in verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God those who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas, in his angst against the Son of God, actually prophesied about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus was about to and able to provide, that only Jesus could provide because of who Jesus was, the demonstration that they were aware of, that they could not explain away, that Jesus did indeed perform these miracles, that he did raise Lazarus from the dead, and that he is the resurrection of life. He then becomes the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who could go to the cross to provide a payment for our sin, and not just for the, uh, the sins of the nation, but for the whole world. And, and in these words, we see that John's proclaiming that, that Jesus came to die for the Gentiles, to call people of, of all races, all nations, throughout all history, to himself, into one family, the children of God, to one community, the church. And so we, are, we see again that it says, true power is creation, and the truest power is resurrection, the new creation that can restore flourishing, even when violence has done its worst. And, and when, we, when we hear these words, and we see that Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross and to suffer a distortion of violence, the greatest distortion of, vi of, of power in all of history, on the perfect, sinless, sunless, uh, perfect, sinless Son of God, um, was inflicted upon him, and he bore the weight of that. He bore the weight of our sins and our shame, and he resurrected to new life means that in the face of whatever violent opposition we face, Christ is more powerful, that he is victorious, and he has defeated violence um, uh, for all of eternity. Now, we do experience that. We do experience harm and pain, and we do experience struggles. And some of you have gone through violent acts in your life, and someone has abused their power against you. 
And you need to hear and understand that Jesus meets you at that crossroad of your pain and your hurt and your shame, and he has overcome, that he has paid that sin debt on the cross, and he has risen victoriously over that. And so that he could redeem you and make you not a, a proponent of distorted violence, but of, of flourishing, of creativity, that you can use the power that God has given you to impact others, to influence them for the glory of God, that you can cultivate a creative power in your life and a platform to share Christ with others. So it comes down to the same question the council had. What are we to do? What are we to do with Jesus? Who do we say that he is? <clears throat> Jesus flipped the tables of power. His willingness to act sacrificially and use his power to overcome sin, guilt, and shame by allowing the greatest distortion uh, of power in history to be enacted upon him has overturned violence and death. He calls us into a right relationship with him to fully understand the power of being an image bearer, a creator, a cultivator of righteousness, a light in this dark world. Even as he says in Matthew 5, 16, says, let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So in, as we come to the conclusion of this passage, we see that, that Jesus knew what he was about to do and that there were all kinds of players on the board that were abusing power, that didn't know the power that they have, and he as the true power, the, the one who is the giver of power, was willing to, to go through this for us so that we could freely come to him, that we don't have to earn our way back to God, but we do have a high priest Jesus Christ, who is the go-between, one mediator between God and man, that he is our go-between, who we can trust, who rightly describes who God is, what God is doing. We can trust God, and he takes our sins before the Father, and he himself pays for them. That anyone who believes in him has eternal life and the right to be called the, uh, the sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful that we can come before you in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, because of what he has done, because he was faithful. Lord, that he didn't allow the abuse of the power of his day to keep him down, Lord, though he was willing to sacrifice himself, to substitute himself for us, Lord. But Lord, he overcame that in the resurrection. And because of the resurrected power, Lord, that we can stand here today, we can sing uh, songs of worship and praise, we can celebrate with communion, Lord, we can bring our requests before you, Lord, because we know that the distortions of violence do not win, that Jesus Christ has overcome the grave, that we can uh, cry out victoriously that he's alive, that he's seated at the throne, Lord, and that we are part of his family, the sons and daughters of God. So, Lord, as we come again in prayer, uh, in song, may you be lifted up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.